This morning's reading is Luke, it's Luke chapter 24, and it's verses 13 to 35, and it can be found on page 1061 of your pew Bibles. Now the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen. And has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we remember the implications of that first Resurrection Sunday through the eyes of these two early disciples on the Emmaus Road. Please would you speak to each one 
to every one of us, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do be seated. Again, here's a reminder of the code, should you need it. And this is what we're looking at uh, this morning, living in light of the cross through the eyes of these two disciples. If there's one thing that we have to grasp to understand the astonishing nature of that first Easter Sunday, it's this. No one was expecting the resurrection. No one. Just think about it for a moment. The women, um, uh, they were the first witnesses. They, they came to the tomb. They, they didn't come to the tomb expecting to find it empty. They came to anoint the body, something that probably they hadn't had time to do, which is why they wanted to come and, and do it in accordance with their customs. They were completely bewildered to find the tomb empty. The other uh, disciples, most of them actually dismiss what they say as an idle tale. They just think they're making it up. They can't believe it. Peter and John are so surprised by this idle tale that they sprint to the tomb to verify it. But even they don't get it. And Peter returns wondering what had happened. Look, as far as we can tell, on that first Easter Sunday morning, no one woke up and said, Do you know what? This is it, folks. This is the greatest day in history. This is what we've been waiting for. It's three days. Here we go. No one was expecting the resurrection. And that includes these two chaps who we're going to spend a bit of time with this morning on the road to Emmaus. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, please do pick them up again. Let's turn to Luke 24 together. It's page 1061. And I've got to say, I love, love, love this passage of Scripture um, for all sorts of, of reasons, really. Um, I think it's a wonderfully honest story. It's an earth story. Um, there's irony in there. There's a little bit of a little bit of humour. Um, but more than that, I think Luke writes in such a way as to effectively draw us all in to the story. And there's something about these two relatively unknown disciples that's immensely relatable. Although they're on a physical journey, we see by the end that it's way more significant than just this physical journey uh, from one place to another. And I think Luke wants his readers and his hearers today to journey uh, with them. So let's do that. Let's try and join them on their journey. So beginning at verse 13. uh, Now that same day, that Sunday, it's the same day, it's the day that the women went to the tomb, that same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. One of them, we're told, is called Cleopas. Uh, His companion, though, is unnamed. And really, all we know about them is that they're part of this wider group of disciples that Luke mentions in verse 9. The assumption is that that Emmaus, this small village to the the west of Jerusalem, is their home. That's why they're returning there. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is for us to imagine, each one of us, that we are on the road with Cleopas. And that's actually possible for all of us. I've called them chaps. 
Um, but we're not actually told the sex of Cleopas's companion. Uh, some, have, uh, some commentators have suspected that it might have been his wife. So all of us can imagine, whether we're, whether we're imagining with a wife or his mate or whoever it is, that we are on the road, on this dry and dusty road out of Jerusalem. So just try and picture the scene, okay? Just try and imagine what it would have been like to journey with Cleopas. The events of the last week have left you confused. You're deeply disappointed. You've begun to walk home depressed and, and utterly dejected. Only seven days previously, you'd come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The mood was high. There was optimism in the air. You'd welcomed Jesus into the city with cut palm trees. You cheered and you praised God. You'd witnessed him clear out the devious and the immoral from the temple court. Surely this was the one, the one who all the prophecies were about. The one who would rescue Israel and restore the nation to her true and rightful place. At last, at last, here was the leader that you had been waiting for, the king that you had been looking for. The one who would throw off Roman tyranny, the one who would reestablish God's law in Israel. So that once again she could be the light of the world. All this optimism. And then all that hope. All that promise. All that excitement had seemingly evaporated overnight. His kingdom hadn't even got going and it had been cruelly snuffed out. And so as you walk you shudder as you recall Jesus' brutal execution You remember his composure and dignity as the nails pierced his body. You remember the screams of the others. The unfair mocking. The tears. The darkness. The earthquake. It just didn't make sense. You're struggling to make sense of it. These are the things that you are discussing with Cleopas as you make your way despondently home. How had it happened? How could you, how could you have been so misled? Where, where did we go wrong, Cleopas? Why had we pinned all our hopes on him? Who was this Jesus? Really, who, who was he anyway? And then only yesterday... Jerusalem seemed to get on with life as normal, as though though nothing had happened. It was just business as usual in the temple, and yet for you and your friends, the dream was dead. What else could you do but just now return home, utterly dejected? Friends, I can't help but wonder, is that not the reality for all those who do not know a risen Lord Jesus? Hopelessness. Disappointment with life. Meaninglessness. Meaningless grief. What do we do with grief and pain and sorrow? Is that not the reality? For those who don't know a risen Jesus. Let's get back to the Emmaus Road. 
as you're wrestling with these issues, a man draws alongside you both. Now, there is something familiar about him, but you can't quite put your finger on what that is. But there is something, and, but you don't recognise him. He walks with you for a bit, enough to hear some of your conversation, and he asks, what are you discussing? What are you chatting about? You stop walking. You know, you've been walking along and you stop dead. What? Is this guy for real? <laughs> what are we talking about? Where has he been? And his apparent ignorance is now only heightening your sense of disappointment. And try as you might, you cannot hide the pain. You cannot hide the sadness from your face. It's etched right across it. And so Clearpass now verbalises what's going on in your head. This is verse um, 18. I'm actually going to just, uh, it's, it's in your Bibles, but I'm going to read the ESV because it, it sort of just gets it slightly tighter. It says, are you the only visitor? It's like, are you the only one in all Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Where have you been? In verse 19, Jesus says, what things? And so trying not to exasperate, you take over from Cleopas and you tell him, this is verse 19, you say about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, this prophet, a powerful, who's powerful in word and deed, but they crucified him. We had hoped that he was going to be the one. We had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And do you know what? It's now three days since it happened. Tomb's empty. Friends can't even find the body. You don't know what to do. And in response, (laughs) this man, this vaguely familiar man, looks at you calmly and gently he says this. This is verse 25. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Wait, what? <laughs> what, what did he just say? What was he going on about? This, yeah, actually, I think, I think this makes some sense. You begin to realise that perhaps this man might be able to help you. You feel your heart begin to stir and you invite him to say more, to to explain what he just meant. And so as you continue your journey, he does just that. He begins with Moses and the prophets. And you get a Bible overview like, like no other. As this man makes the case that all scripture does indeed point towards a crucified, suffering, servant king. You are transfixed by this. The minutes, they pass into hours. And before you know it, evening is upon you and you've nearly reached your destination now. You don't want this to stop. (laughs) You want to keep listening to him. And so you encourage him, stay with us, stay with us. You, you, You can't go further anyway, it's nearly evening. Come and stay with us. And the man agrees. It's at the mealtime that it happens. (laughs) It's at the mealtime that it happens. It's a revelation that you will never forget as long as you live. Just try and imagine that. Exactly what happened, it's difficult to describe. But as your guest takes his place at the table, as he takes the bread, as he gives thanks, and as he passes you some... Suddenly, you see him. Wow. And I mean really see him. Jesus. Jesus. It's you. It's you, Jesus. 
And then, in an instant, he's gone. He's gone. You turn to Cleopas. Cleopas, I knew it. Did you not feel your heart come alive? Did you not feel it burning as he was explaining the scriptures to us? Cleopas, this is incredible. It all makes sense now. Cleopas, this is brilliant. It's all true. Jesus has beaten death. He's alive. There is hope. We've got to let the others know now. Come on, we've got to let them know now. And so you do, despite the fact that it's dark. Despite the fact that, you know, we're already into the evening. Despite the fact that it's two to three hours to get a walk just to get back to Jerusalem. Despite all that, you leg it back there and try and find the disciples to tell them. And you know what? As you get there, you discover that you're not the only ones. Because Jesus has appeared to them too. And so, friends, I can't help but also wonder, is this, is that not the reality for all those who do know a risen Lord Jesus? Burning, joy-filled hearts, purpose, meaning, and hope, hope for the future. Friends, this is what the good news of Easter, what the good news of Christianity is all about. And let me offer just three main observations in response to Luke's, um, Luke's account. We've been, we've been journeying with Luke um, over this Easter period. And let me just offer now three um, explanations in response. The first is this. Life's true meaning can only be found alongside a risen Jesus. Life's true meaning can only be found alongside a risen Jesus. Look, there are essentially two main perspectives at play here. There is the perspective of looking at life without a risen Lord Jesus. That's essentially the disciples at the start. And then there is a perspective of looking at life with a risen Lord Jesus. And that's the experience of the disciples at the end. And then slap bang in the middle of these two perspectives, Luke presents the facts. He gives us the facts. This is what Luke is all about, don't forget. He wants to reassure his readers with facts and certainty about the faith. We know that from his expressed intentions at the start of his book. And what Luke is basically saying is this. These are the facts, and there are two ways to look at them. But only one of them makes sense. Let's explore this some more. From verse 19, we get given the key facts. So look with me. Verse Uh, Verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, powerful in deed and word. Fact, that's a fact. Verse 20, uh, he was condemned to death, sentenced to death, and they crucified him. That is a fact. Verse 21, he claimed to be the one uh, who would redeem Israel. He claimed that, that's a fact. You know, the fact that he claimed it, it is true. Verse, also verse 21, he'd been dead three days now. It's now the third day, we're told, that since this took place. It's three days. Fact. And then verse 23, um, uh, they, went and they found that the tomb was empty. They did not find his body. Fact. Those are the facts. They don't change. They can't change because they're facts. But how you look at those facts changes everything and the difference between what we see with and without a risen Jesus is remarkable and can you see how how confused how depressed how hopeless they are without Jesus at the start I'm sure they had way more questions and answers to begin with and, and one of them at least must have been you know who was this Jesus anyway 
And that's a really important question for all of us to consider. We must all consider that. What do we make of the man who without question lived, breathed and died on this planet 2,000 years ago? What do we make of the claims that he made? To forgive sin, to, 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 to be God himself, to be the only way to everlasting life. What do we make of those claims? Was he just a good man? Was he a bad man? Was he simply a madman? Is he dead? Is he alive? Everyone needs to wrestle with these questions because the stakes are so high. And without a risen Jesus, the facts and the claims are confusing. They, they don't make sense. They, they just don't add up. If Jesus didn't come back to life and prove that that is possible, if this life is really all that there is, then it means that everything that happens here is ultimately meaningless. What's the point to it all if there's no lasting value? Is life not just depressing, promising so much, delivering so little? If all we've got are our three score years and ten and maybe a little bit more now? Is life just not a cruel, depressing joke? Life without a risen Jesus has no meaning. But on the other hand, life's true meaning can only be found alongside a risen Jesus. Because Jesus comes and he draws alongside these disciples and he helps them to join the dots. He corrects their thinking. He shifts their perspective from what it was at the start to what it's going to become. And he reveals himself to them. What's the result of that? There's joy, there's meaning, there's hope, there's purpose. Joy as their hearts burned excitedly within them. Meaning, Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the one who died for our sins and defeated death itself. Then there's hope. There's hope for the future, not just for this life, but forever. Jesus can be trusted. You can trust him. Everything that he promised came true and his resurrection proves that this life is not all there is. It's a joy, meaning, hope, purpose. That's the fourth thing, purpose. There is a need to hurry and pass on this good news. That this life is not all there is and that Jesus holds the key to the next stage. And, and so by the end of this, this physical journey, Cleopas and his companion have also been, we discover, on a spiritual journey. One that has seen their perspective shift radically. From this confused, depressed, hopelessness to this joyous, purpose-driven, hopefulness. So here's the question. Which perspective do you want? Which perspective do you have this morning? The one with Jesus or the one without Jesus? In a sense, each one of us is on a similar journey, not the physical one to Emmaus, but that spiritual one, the spiritual one that leads to eternity. Some of us may identify more like the travellers at the start of this journey. Some of us may identify more like those at the end. But even those of us who are in this category, those who sort of maybe identify with the disciples at the end and, and we know the risen Lord Jesus, even those of us in that category, sometimes do we not find it difficult? 
Sometimes do we not lose perspective slightly? As the troubles of this life, as the cares of this world, they, they, they drag us down and they, they, they shift our focus. So what are we to do? How can we change perspective to the one that really we all want? And when, when we're there with that changed perspective, how do we keep that perspective? Well, this is our second observation, my second observation this morning. How perspective is changed. And here I think there are four things that we need to notice. So notice firstly that Jesus draws near. It's Jesus who draws near. Look again at verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. With them. This whole change of perspective is initiated by the presence of Jesus. He comes and he meets them where they are at. And this is what Jesus does time and time and time and time and time again. And he takes the most unexpected of circumstances. He takes the most difficult of circumstances. He takes the most tragic and sad and painful of circumstances to draw alongside us and to impress on us our complete and utter need and dependence of him. Now those circumstances may be shattered dreams or betrayal. They may be loss or a tragic death. They may be a marital breakdown or relational difficulties. It may be illness or financial difficulty. Through all such times and, and, and many more, the risen Lord Jesus still draws near today by the power of his Spirit. And he wants you to know, and he wants to reassure you of his presence with you. It's a massive comfort, isn't it, that Jesus does that? God himself draws near. How? How does he do that? Through Jesus, the word. Through the word. So next, notice how these disciples listen to his word. This is verse uh, 27. And beginning um, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I share one commentator's frustration when the gospel uh, writer uh, writes this at this point. Um, uh, this is Jesus himself, okay? He is about to give the Bible view par excellence, okay? He is, he's, he's about to do it. I mean, forget the Goldsworthy trilogy, if you've heard of that. Forget Vaughan Roberts' um, uh, Bible overview, you know, God's big picture. I know our youth have been looking at that. For, 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 forget that. As excellent as they are, forget all them. This is Jesus himself. And, 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 and Luke doesn't give us a single word. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't give us a sentence of what Jesus covers. Um, 
we don't know, but presumably Jesus begins at the beginning and um, starts with Moses' record in Genesis of the promise that Adam's descendant would crush Satan. Presumably he starts there. We watch the Passion of the Christ again over, over Easter. There's a, a, a brilliant sort of depiction of that visually. Um, uh, presumably he would have um, appropriated David's prophetic psalm of suffering, Psalm 22. Presumably Jesus would have gone there. Uh, no doubt he would have included the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the pierced one of Zechariah 12, before ending up in Malachi's um, messenger of the promise. But what else? <laughs> what else? What else? It says it all scripture. What else would he have covered and how? Look, as intriguing as that question is, it's not the important thing here. Um, I, you know, I've spent time thinking about it. The important thing, though, is that Jesus explained how all scripture pointed to him. And the important thing is that the two travelers listened to him. That's the point Luke's getting across here. And when they listened to the word, when they listened to Jesus, do you know what happened? The word began to transform them. Jesus began to transform them. And friends, today, if we desire that our perspectives are to be transformed and renewed, we need to keep listening to the word. We need to keep listening to Jesus. We need to be convinced that the message of the Bible is inextricably the message of Jesus, the saviour of the whole world. So notice how Jesus draws near. Notice how they listen to his word. Next, notice how they invite Jesus to stay. This is verse uh, 28 and 29. And I've got to be honest here. I used to be a little bit troubled by verse 28. Uh, verse 28 says, as they, approached, uh, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted, acted, Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus acted as if he were going to go further? So why did he pretend? Why is Jesus acting here? Well, you know, it's a little concerning. Is he in the, you know, in the business of deception? No, 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 no. You know, it dawned on me. It dawned on me that Jesus draws alongside. He speaks words of life. But he never forces himself on anyone. Never forces himself on anyone. The decision to accept Jesus, the decision to respond to him from a certain point of view, is down to you and to I inviting Jesus to stay in our hearts. So look at verse 29. What happens in verse uh, 29? They urged him, and then just over the page, they urged him strongly, stay with us. And so he went in to stay with them. And friends, if that is a genuine invitation to Jesus, he's never going to turn it down. He will never turn down that invitation. And so we have taken note that Jesus draws near. We've noticed them listening to the word and inviting him to stay. And then finally, we need to notice that spiritual eyes are opened. Verse 30 uh, through to 31, after Jesus had broken bread, after he'd prayed, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he, he disappeared from their sight. Now, look, we're not told what it was that finally caused the penny to drop. 
Maybe it was the way that Jesus prayed. Maybe they saw his nail-pierced hands at that point. But what is certain is that the time was right for the veil to be lifted at that point. At last those dots were connected for them. At last they saw Jesus in all his life-giving significance. Not just his powerful prophet and promised Messiah, but God himself as their sacrificial sin-bearing rescuer. And do you know what's interesting, I think, about all four of these things? Is that this change of perspective is the result of both divine intervention and human activity. Yes, we listen to the word. Yes, we have to invite Jesus in to stay, but the work is begun and it is completed by the Lord. He is the one who draws near. He is the one who opens eyes. So, what should our response be to this amazing miracle? I think we get our answer in the final few verses of the passage. So from verse, uh, verse 32. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked, uh, uh, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. And verse 35, the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. You know, in other words, Cleopas and his companion did not waste any time in telling others how their hearts had burned within them. They didn't waste any time at all. And this is something I think that all followers of Jesus should be quick to copy. We need to encourage others with our own perspective shifting, our own heart burning experiences. When did you first feel your heart burn within you? How exactly did that happen? In 1738, John Wesley found his Emmaus Road. In his diary on May the 24th, he wrote this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Someone was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ... This is what Wesley writes. I felt strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley was hearing the gospel third hand, if you like, you know, from the person reading the preface to Romans. And yet, even three steps removed, he heard the call of the risen Lord Jesus drawing alongside him. And he responded and through it found salvation. It happened to me some 250 years later. Not quite as grand, I'm afraid, but I was only about nine or ten. 
I was in our bathroom at home praying with my mum and dad. I'd just come back from a, a concert by the blind Christian artist Marilyn Baker. Some of you may have heard of her. She'd given her testimony that evening. She'd sung songs full of gospel truth and meaning. And that night, I came back and I asked for the Lord's forgiveness and I wanted to commit my life to him just at nine or ten. And do you know what? My heart too, I can still remember it ever so vividly. I don't know, I didn't know how to describe it at the time, but something was warmed through me at that point. To use Wesley's terminology, I was strangely warmed. But what about you? When did your heart burn within you? Has it burned within you? You know, we all have our own original testimonies. The Lord has given us those for a purpose. We all have ongoing testimonies. Not just how our hearts burned initially, but how through his mercy the Lord continues to allow our hearts to burn from time to time. And at the end of these Easter holidays, as we look back and we've remembered these momentous events of Jesus' death and resurrection, let's go forward being being followers of Jesus, committed to sharing with as many people as possible how Jesus has drawn alongside us. How Jesus' word has spoken into our lives. Telling people how we have responded to Jesus' word. And explaining how our spiritual eyes were opened by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great news of Easter. That Jesus is alive. That the grave could not hold him. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help each one of us to maintain perspective. To gain perspective, if needs be. To maintain perspective. And to live out lives of joyous, purpose-driven hopefulness. That communicate good news, gospel, to all those whom we meet. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.